Are you listening to me? I am now. Good. You listening to me? Yeah. Good. Put that hand on me again, you won't get it back. <laughs> Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait You Haven't Seen, and it's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically, we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. Uh, I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 122, and the movie that we watched this week was The Book of Eli from 2010. Joining me to talk about it, I have two people. First off is Nisbet returning. How you doing, Nisbet? Good, Good, good. And also, uh, first time on the show... Uh, we've had his dad on, and now it's Austin's turn. Austin Root. Austin, how you doing? I'm excited to be here. Excellent. Well, we're excited to have you. So, all right, I'll start with you, Nisbet. You had seen this movie before, yes? Yes. Okay. And Austin, had you seen it before? I have, yeah. Uh, me and my dad actually reviewed it for our podcast a while back. Okay. Um, that's, that's great. So I had not. This is my first time seeing this movie. Um, I had never... Never seen it. And it's one that kind of felt like I should have seen it because it's it sort of up, up my alley. I love post-apocalyptic stuff. I love Denzel Washington. Um, and for whatever reason, I missed it, uh, watching it when it was in theaters. And then I had a friend of mine who kept just hammering on me. You got to watch the movie. I want to talk to you about it. You got to watch it. I want to talk to you about it. And I never, I never was able to. Uh, so finally, uh, I'm seeing it now. And it's a good movie. It was, it was yeah. quite enjoyable. Because I, mean, I for the only other time I'd seen it was actually in college in my and a friend's dorm room, not that long after it had gone to DVD actually. Okay. And I remember, I, I I remember watching it for the first time and watching it again. I remember how violent the movie was. <laughs> I knew it, remembered it being violent, but it's like, oh yeah, that happened. Right. The clip at the, the beginning, it's like, <laughs> oh yeah, happened. Right. So I know about that. Right. So so what I knew about this movie prior to seeing it was uh, Denzel Washington, post-apocalyptic. I knew the Hughes brothers had directed it, and I was familiar with them as directors from uh, seeing From Hell and Menace to Society were a couple of their movies. We'll talk about them a little bit later, but unfortunately one thing had been spoiled for me um it, it, the twist was spoiled for me uh not on purpose it was accidentally done um but it didn't affect my viewing of the movie a whole lot because I, i'm pretty good about being able to get into something and and kind of watch it objectively i think partly it, it's that the the twist didn't um for me, it didn't fundamentally change a whole lot of the movie. And I'll kind of explain that in a little bit. But prior to seeing it, Austin, um, how did that how did that hit you? First of all, we're going to be talking spoilers for anybody listening. Um, it's what we do on the show. So enjoy that. But uh, Austin, how did that twist kind of hit you right at the end of the movie? I uh, The twist completely threw me off guard, to be <laughs> honest. Uh, because... My dad, when we were talking about it, he was like, yeah, they were showing all these little hints throughout uh, mm -hmm. 
like uh, there were blind people everywhere, the glasses. I didn't pick up on any of that. I was more like focused on uh, the fighting and mm-hmm. like the religion uh, kind of aspect of the plot. Yeah. 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 Which is a huge part of it. Um, and yeah. it's interesting because much like the twist of the, the twist is Eli Denzel Washington's character is blind. Um, yeah. He didn't see it coming. Nice Bill. Um, but the, the other twist of it, like the other twist that's revealed slightly earlier is the book that he's carrying is a King James Bible. Um, because they kind of keep that under wraps for about two thirds of the movie that it's a Bible. They're very, very heavy handedly hinting at it, but they don't come out and say it. Um, and it kind of feels like they almost wanted to have like a twist and then another twist um, in a way. And well, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, but at the same time, I mean, if you're paying attention to the twist, both of them really aren't that twisty. No. Because of the amount of hints they, they just drop, just piecemeal just throughout the entire thing it's like when you get to the end it's like oh okay that makes total sense not shocked one of the things was i watched this movie twice and on a second watch fully knowing the twist it definitely does change the way that you see a lot of stuff um so i i enjoyed this movie but i didn't love this movie if that makes if that makes sense i'm curious how you I'm, that, I'm curious that, how you both felt about that. Nisbet, what, what is your kind of take on the movie as a, as in general? And then we'll kind of dive into some of the other parts of it. But It was good. I, I don't, I mean, one of the critics had did before, I guess, before the release that this wouldn't be one of Washington's higher grossing films. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, obviously that would wind up being correct. But at the same time, when you're watching the movie, you can kind of see why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Austin. What, what do you think? Uh, like overall, does does sort of the critical response, if you've read any of that, sort of track with with what you thought of the movie, or did you really like it? I I have no idea what critics said about this movie. Uh, <laughs> okay. My first viewing of this movie, I really disliked it. Uh, I think it the concepts of it. Uh, I had a hard time connecting to it, and so. I watched it uh, a second and a third time before coming on here. And I don't know. I, I see this as a very philosophical movie and I like that aspect of it, mm-hmm. but I also feel like as a work of art, there are some like technical downsides to it. Okay. I actually kind of feel almost the opposite of it. I think from a technical standpoint, it's very, very well done. Um, I think that there are some narrative issues that I have with the movies. Like I, I watched it twice and it feels to me it's good, but not great. I think some of that was, it was so hyped up to me by a lot of people prior to me seeing it. Um, and it was, it was good, but I felt like it was about three quarters of the way to being something really amazing and transcendent. And it's got the pieces for that, but it didn't quite kind of crest that hill. Um, and to start with, I want to talk about the cast because the cast is one of those parts that, that should be on paper is just fantastic. Denzel Washington is an amazing screen presence. 
I have well, very much. You know, I, I have I have thought that uh, for over twenty years now, probably twenty five years. He's so good, and he's very good in this. But something's missing. You know, it's funny because I don't think I've ever seen a Denzel Washington movie to date that I can recall where I did not like him in that movie. Oh yeah, he elevates everything he's in by by factors of ten. I mean, he's just so good. Um. But this, that he is very good in this. Yet it's still probably not in my top ten of Denzel performances or movies. Certainly not in the top five. It might scrape into a top ten, depending. He's got a lot of a lot of work out there that's pretty pretty damn good. Um, yeah. But I mean, I'll watch him in just about anything. I, I'm curious, Austin, what you thought of Denzel um, in the movie as both the the character and then the performance of that character. I. I feel like he embodies the character. Like I I get almost absorbed into watching him and like I fully believe everything he's doing. I don't like I'm bad at actors. Like I can't list a bunch of things that I've seen Denzel Washington in, but I know I've seen him in other stuff. Mm-hmm. And this maybe just cuz it's the most recent, but it sticks out in my memory a lot. And I think something with Denzel Washington that I really like is you have some actors who are always that actor, right? Dwayne Johnson is typically, he's the rock. And you see him in something and it's Dwayne Johnson in this movie. Um, Will Smith is like that for me quite often where it's whatever movie I'm watching, it's Will Smith as this character in that movie. Um, and then you get the the method actors, the people that disappear into roles. And the, you, you don't recognize Gary Oldman being one of them where you, you almost don't recognize him in, in half the movies that he's in. Denzel sort of somehow manages to sort of fit right in the middle for me where he embodies different characters. And I don't feel like he's always giving the same performance yet. It's always Denzel, whether I'm watching him as um, his character, an American gangster or, um, or training day. And then I watch him in something like fallen or I watch him in this or, um, uh, remember the Titans is another one. He's always playing a really interesting character, but he's still, it's still Denzel. There's something with the way he carries himself on screen. I love his, the, the stance that he gets where it, like something about the way he carries his shoulders when he's standing makes him look more imposing than he really is. And like, I don't know. I noticed it with, um, a lot when I watched training day last year for the show again, um, and even in this movie, just the the scene where he's being questioned by Carnegie early on, Gary Oldman's character, the way he stands there, just how he holds his arms, how he holds his shoulders, gives him this weight on screen that I think uh, I really enjoy. It feels right. It's just this Denzel charisma. He just has it. He has something that I can't define, but it's it makes him really watchable in anything, no matter how bad it is. And he's done a few bad movies, too. So... I I think you're right about that. And I think that suits the character he's playing here because Mm. Eli is sure of himself. He's like, I'm on a mission and I'm going to do that mission. And you're not going to stop me because God would have told me otherwise. Yes. Yes. He is devout and he is uh, steadfast in what he is going to do. That's true. And honestly, I can't picture anyone else pulling that off the way that Denzel does in this movie. I think that's a good way to put it. He very much embodies the character. Um, he's just, uh, he's so good in everything that he does. I mean, Nisbet, you nailed it. He just makes everything he's in better 
for him. Even if the movie isn't good, he's good in it. Uh, but more often than not, his movies are pretty good. Um, but the rest yeah. of this cast is also good. I mean, Gary Oldman playing your villain. Gar- Gary Oldman is a chameleon. He disappears into roles. I notice him now a lot just because I'm me and I, I happen to pay really close attention to it. But like Gary Oldman, even in this movie, given what he his character is, which his character is very kind of two-dimensional, in my opinion. But if it wasn't Gary Oldman, it would be it wouldn't be good. Yeah. Well, and it's funny too, because I mean, I don't know how much stock to put in this um, because I don't know how accurate a lot of the, the trivia on IMDb winds up being, but apparently on IMDb, Oldman was cast sort of at the request of Denzel. I mean, which I found to be kind of, in, which I found to be interesting. Yeah, and look, I, I always take all IMDb trivia with a grain of salt, but I could see that happening um, because Denzel is a uh, he he co-produced this, I believe, um, which helps. But he also yeah. he he knows <clears throat> actors, and and Gary Oldman is a is a hell of an actor, and he brings a lot to uh, to a role. What I love are um, stories of Gary Oldman. Oh on set like on I think it was the professional Leon the professional where his character is so bombastic and so over the top and just such a terrible person but then as soon as they yell cut he turns into nice guy Gary Oldman again like he he's truly an actor he doesn't method act where he's stays in character all the time it's just like the camera's turned on he goes into acting mode and as soon as they yell cut boom he's back to being Gary Oldman and he's just a nice guy talking to everybody and then he can flip that switch and that's that's rare and it's, it's a little it, creepy it kind of well i mean yes i can see where it would be creepy but at the same time it's like it's somebody who's just super skilled at what he does and being able to to turn like that because i would much rather see uh and work with somebody like that when they're playing a crazy character than um a super method actor who like a jim carrey who never wants to break character and you makes you call him Andy Kaufman the entire time. Uh, so or both, or both Jared Leto who's going to mail you a dead rat or something. Yeah, I uh but uh but Oldman in this what I loved is his character is so slimy and so evil and he just wants that bible so bad but he wants it for all the wrong reasons. He wants that bible for control, for power. Um regardless of what the words are in it, that's what he just wants that as a weapon. I mean, he talks about the book being a weapon and he's just dirty and greasy all the time, but yet he wants to be clean. Like he talks about cleaning and people cleaning their hands. And by the end of the movie, he's just covered in this layer of grime. Um, he was great. Yes. Uh, he, Ace, he was, he was very good in, uh, the Batman movies. He was a good commissioner Gordon. So. Can I say uh, you you mentioned him being two dimensional, and I almost feel like that's the point. Like I'm not trying to excuse bad writing, but like I feel like his character is more of an idea or like a representation mm-hmm. of bad people than like a specific person you're supposed to be terrified of. Yeah, does that make sense? No, it yeah. does. It it does. No, and and when you say it like that, no, it it's it actually makes a lot of sense with respect to the movie and, and sort of all the philosophical bits and pieces with regards to the movie. So yeah, no, that, that actually is, yeah, no, that makes sense. 
Um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Tom Waits as the engineer. Uh, Phil, Phil brought it up in the chat already, but Tom Waits, I love seeing Tom Waits in movies because he's always playing this one little side character and he's just great. He, I'm a Tom Waits fan of his music, um, which is way out there. If you, if you ever listen to it, uh, can get pretty crazy, but he's just such a, uh, an interesting presence. He doesn't have a ton to do in this, but his scenes are great. Um, his scene with Denzel when he first shows up in town and he's got the shotgun pointed at him and then he's like, Oh yeah, you know, I can, I can do this for you. And you know, it'll take me a couple hours. Why don't you wait across the street? And that whole exchange, uh, that one and the one at the beginning, just this tension that can, the two of them basically just staring at each other. And there's so much being said between the two of them. He does look like somebody who belongs in a post-apocalypse. Absolutely, Phil. That is very true. And he's shown up in a lot of post-apocalyptic stuff. Um, I watched a, a movie not that long ago from Jim Jarmusch called The Dead Don't Die. And he was in that as like a hermit. And I don't think he actually had to uh, to go to wardrobe. I think it was just his normal clothes. Then he could be like the hermit out in the woods. But he's great. Um, and for having such a small role, like I just, I always... I geek out and I get excited when I see Tom Waits in a cast list or I see him show up in a movie. Um, that's right. He was Renfield in Bram Stoker's Dracula. So he's worked with Gary Oldman before too. Um, and then uh, Michael Gambon as George. Uh, again, very, very small role. Uh, interesting to hear Michael Gambon with an American accent too. He was the the old man at the house. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't cotton on him with that one. Yeah, that's that, uh, that's Dumbledore that, version two. Yeah, I just <laughs> oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I just realized that. Yeah, I, <laughs> it threw me. His role with that threw me. So. Yeah, I mean, he's you know he, he's playing a very uh, a very minor role. He's not in the movie for very long, but he's another one of those actors that I love seeing and stuff. Um, so you know. Yeah. That is true, Phil. Like half the cast from Harry Potter's in this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Evan Jones as Martz, um, who was the leader of the road gang that uh, that gets killed in the bar um, in probably the most, I almost want to say it's the most brutal death in the movie. And that, that's saying something because there's so many of them in this. But I think it's because he gets slammed into that bar so hard and it's the delay of it. It's it's the delay of him finally going down that, for me, is really brutal. I don't know how that affected either of you, but that one kind of stuck with me a little bit. Um, it's it's kind of more realistic than the other deaths where it's just quick and over with. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get to be in that moment a little more. Yeah, and there like there's a moment between him and Eli and then as he kind of stands up and he starts to smile by that point, he's already gone. He just, his body hasn't shut down yet. And then boom, everything lights go out and he drops. Um, now I had a couple casting issues, not because they're not good, uh, actors. I just, I feel like, and, and maybe some of it is writing Mila Kunis as Solara is good. Um, but I feel like she wasn't given enough to do in the movie. I don't know. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, it, it seems like they sort of just added the role for the sake of having another role. I don't. I don't know. 
like I feel like they could have given her more to do. Yeah. I don't know. Awesome. What is she? What... She's meant to be like a disciple character, right? But she doesn't mm -hmm. do much in the way of the plot other than get rescued by Eli a couple of times and then like carrying on his legacy. But we don't, other than at the very end where she steals the car, <laughs> we don't get to see much of her journey to becoming a warrior kind of thing. Yeah. She feels almost like, uh, like she was written like an accessory, like she was tacked on and then, Oh, but we'll give her this, you know, this little bit to do at the end and then she'll carry on. I just felt like Mila Kunis has a good screen presence, but she felt out of place too, in a way, like she's supposed to be young and, and mostly, I mean, I would, I would assume um, uneducated in a classical sense because she, there just hasn't been anything. She knows nothing of the old world, but uh, the way that she spoke kind of didn't fit for that. I don't know. It, it was, it's not a knock on her. Uh, it's a little bit of a knock on maybe the, the, just the writing of the character or, or her in that particular role. I don't know. Um, so yeah, I, I, she was fine. Um, but in the end, kind of unmemorable. Now, Ray Stevenson is Red Ridge, who's sort of Gary Oldman's right-hand man. I'm bummed about him. And I'm bummed about him because I love Ray Stevenson as an actor. I think he is another one of those guys with a good presence. I liked him as Volstagg in the Thor movies. Um, he was actually, up until the Netflix version of Punisher, was my favorite on-screen version of the Punisher um, from uh, the Punisher Warzone for the half dozen people out there that have seen that movie. Um, in this, I feel like we're missing 80% of what his story is because his, his characterization felt unbalanced. Like it, it felt we'd, we'd have a scene where he very much seemed like the right hand man, kind of henchman going to, going to do whatever for Carnegie. And then, the next scene, it would feel like an adversarial relationship between the two of them. Like it, it was, I just, I didn't, I didn't buy that a whole lot. Like go one way or the other, but it just felt too disjointed. I don't know. What did, what, awesome. What do you think of that character? Aside from the fact that all he does is growl throughout the whole movie. I, I was so confused by him. Cause he, uh, like, I didn't even pick up on his full character arc until my second watch through because mm -hmm. like uh he's supporting the leader of this town but then he also lets uh eli go yeah but then he also likes uh mila kunas's character and he like wants her mm -hmm. and then he lets her go at that i it's just kind of thrown in there at uneven parts and it doesn't really there's no narrative structure to his character he's just a background thing yeah, and, and I like, feel like we're supposed to care. Yeah, and I want to know, like, I almost, I want to know more about his character. How did he come to be the position that he's in if he's this against what Carnegie's doing half the time? I don't know. It's it's a weird thing. I, f I, I just feel like they couldn't quite figure out exactly what they wanted to do with him. So. I couldn't quite, I didn't quite catch did was Red Ridge supposed to have been around before the apocalypse happened? I believe so, because he knew what a TV was, and apparently nobody under the age of thirty knows what a television is. So, He's kind yeah. of older. I mean, because that, I mean, that very well just could. 
why he was because he was the only person who really understood the, the before and the after. Yeah, I mean, that could be. It's just, it's like it's a, a, go ahead. Is, is it like a respect your elders kind of thing? He's old enough so he gets to be in power or like second in command. I mean, could be, right? He's also a big imposing figure, right? He's a big tall guy. He's probably, we don't see him fight, but I'm sure he could handle himself in a fight. Ray Stevenson is a good screen presence. I just feel like the character was written weird. Yeah, it was written weird and it was, Austin, you put it perfectly, is inconsistent. You just don't know one scene to the next what he's going to do. Like He's smart enough and good enough to track people, yet he takes a machete and sets it on the dashboard of the truck. Yeah. Which then somehow manages to perfectly go straight into him. That that's another thing. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it's like yeah. it was fate. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Um I just for me that bums me out because Ray Stevenson is so good and he was reduced to just growling the whole time to, to do an American accent. And yeah. you know, just, he's obviously he's got to hide his northern Irish accent, but still, like, come on, you can do better than that. Um, and outside of that, it's a lot of people we don't know. Jennifer Beals as uh, Claudia, the blind uh, Solar's mother, um, yeah. only has a few scenes, but I liked her. Um, yeah, I just, she was good. She was very good. I think I I mentioned earlier how this felt like it was about two thirds to three quarters of the way towards being amazing. It's good. I think visually, this movie is very interesting to watch. I think that it's got some uh, some very kind of cool looking camera work. Uh, there's a few times where the backgrounds look almost too weird and too fake. Um, but I, I think the thing upon the watching of this to this time around, I think the thing that really struck me was the heavy use of color filter. Oh yeah. Oh, this movie is totally, uh, it came out this in 2010. Yeah. The movie Really weird yellow color filter. Yeah, everything's washed out. There's hardly any color. There's hardly any actual color in the movie. It's all grays and browns. Um, it's all washed out. And and some of that I think is to kind of show the nuclear winter that they're dealing with, right? And the fallout and and how how sunny everything. Like UV is very high. Everybody's got to wear sunglasses when they go outside. Um, but then there was some cool camera work, like the fight in the bar. I really dug the circular um, one take shot with uh, with the fight going on in the middle of it and the camera panning around it. But then they'd cut away from that and show a close up and then come back to it. And like that's something where I want to see that as a single take. Don't do the cutaways into like a close up of the action to somehow make it feel like there's more action going on. Just give me that nice panning shot all the way around it because the choreography in this was great. Um, it was choreographed by Jeff Imada, and he's fantastic as a fight choreographer. And yeah. Denzel, Denzel reportedly did all his own uh, martial arts and all his own stunts for yeah. for all of the hand to hand combat, and trained for a few months prior to it. And it shows he looks great. And I just there's some editing choices I think I wouldn't have made if it were me. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely, definitely some editing choices that that I would not have made either. Um, but I mean, it, it's funny because they never really specifically said, hey, a nuclear war happened. No, they just they're, you're right. Dropped hints, 
everywhere. Yeah, you're right. They they're very like breadcrumbs and cagey about what happened and exactly when. They talk about it being 30 winters since the flash. So, okay, that so roughly 30 years have passed since whatever that was, probably a bomb of some kind or several. But they they also talk about the war. How long did the war go on before that or was the war after that? Um that kind of thing. So it's very yeah. uh it's very like filling not filling in the blanks which I don't mind. I don't I don't need to have everything spoon-fed to me, but there's also a, it leaves a lot of holes too um in the narrative. So I I I guess we can talk about the writing a little bit here. This was written by Gary Whitta, um and this was his first film script. He's mostly known for writing uh video games. Um he wrote uh the video game Prey and then uh the Walking Dead video game um he wrote the story for Rogue One, but not the uh, not the actual screenplay. So the story was his, but his movies are basically the Book of Eli, After Earth, um, which was I haven't seen, but I I've not heard a single good word about. And then Rogue One, uh, those are his movies. He's done some episodes of Star Wars Rebels um, and a lot of video game stuff. But I feel like they hand waved a lot of things in this and they sort of, they, they, it was the, well, anything's possible during the cutaway um, is the joke that I like to use where, you know, you just cut the camera away and whatever you want to have happen can happen as long as it's off screen. Because there was a few different times. How did Denzel get out of that room without the guard seeing him? There's only one door. How, how, how did he get out? Yeah, let's just not mention it. He just got out. Um, same way, same thing with uh, Solara. How did she get out of the, the place where the water spring was? when he locked her in there. We just suddenly see her walking along the road. Um, it's like, yeah, you know, just don't, don't think about it. It just happened. Um, there's a few of those, the, the bit in the truck where she flips the truck over, uh, is cool looking, but how did that work? Because you had two people in the front seat. One of them, a presumably well-trained, um, kind of paramilitary guy, and yet she manages to flip that truck over and get him impaled by the giant machete that's sitting in the front dash. Like, yeah, I mean, it sort of. I guess it would sort of depend on the reaction of the driver too. I mean, I could see sure. it possibly happening, happening. But I mean, you're also talking about the driver turning the wheel at just the right moment, just the right amount. You know stepping on the brake at just the right moment. I mean, there's just a bunch of string of things have to happen exactly correctly for that to happen. Yeah, there, there's a lot of... I feel like there are a lot of moments in this movie where it's just suspend disbelief, it happened, let's move on. And yeah. that's what... That, for me, is what keeps it from being a great movie. Too. It's enjoyable. Yeah. I'd, I'd watch it again. I'll watch it with friends or wh whatever. Like I didn't hate the movie at all. Um, and I hope that it doesn't come across that way. I, I did enjoy it quite a bit, but it's sort of, it's one of those, eh, it's good, but it could have been something really good with a better script. Now, what I do like is that it's an original property. It's not an adaptation of anything. It's somebody came up yeah. with this idea and it was, um, Every year, Hollywood has what they call their, uh, or somebody calls the Hollywood blacklist. They're like the, the best scripts that people read but didn't get made into movies, and this was one of those. This yeah, was one of those movies. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, it's technically a sequel to the Bible, so I don't know if we can call it totally original. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, and, and, and it pulls from some interesting things. I mean, um, Eli is very similar to uh, Zatoichi, um, and that was, a, that was an IMDb um, bit of trivia, but it's true. He, he very much is similar to the, the blind Japanese swordsman. Um, he deals with everything very calmly. One, so I mentioned that I like the visual style of this. I love when a movie has um, varying visual kind of motifs for, for their set pieces. Uh, one of my problems with a lot of um, current Michael Bay type movies is that all the action sequences just feel like the same thing over and over with different uh, different people or different uh, kind of just a different order, but it's still the same type of action and all that. And what I liked about this movie was they, they tried to vary that up. That first fight that he gets into um, is cool because he backs into that under that overpass and goes into the dark. And then we get the cool, you know, silhouetted, very quick, uh, all done in one shot fight. Um, and it's, it's well choreographed and it's really cool looking. Then you contrast that with later on when he's in the bar and the camera's moving a lot and there's a lot more going on. Um, so it changes kind of, it's the same type of martial arts, but the way they shot it and the way they lit it with it being in this kind of dark environment, but everybody's lit up inside of that. So it's instead of a silhouette on a bright background, now you've got bright characters inside of a dark room and the camera's moving all the time made it a very different kind of visual experience. So I, I appreciate stuff like that. Um, the camera movements and the way they would uh, keep things uh, moving around during that shootout scene at the house, I thought was kind of cool with the that constant moving, almost impossible camera. Like the shot going straight at that big minigun as they're shooting it out the back of the truck. Um, yeah. You know, all that, all that stuff. I love camera movements and, and interesting things like that to kind of keep your eye. So... That I really, really liked. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's one of those where there's a lot of good ability in here, but the script kind of lets it down. Because I feel like after that shootout and they get captured, like from the moment that uh, Carnegie's men come in and grab uh, Eli and Solara, that's the moment in the movie for me where it starts to fall down fall off the cliff a little bit which is yeah. unfortunate because that's when this twist starts getting revealed and all the, yeah. the end movie stuff starts to happen and it feels like it feels it's the weakest part of the movie for me now i don't know about the two of you but austin you said when you first saw this you didn't really care for it a whole lot is, is that kind of where it turned for you or was it sort of from the beginning uh a little bit of both um i think part of it was that like the end is almost an exposition dump of mm -hmm. stuff that's already like throughout. It's like, here are the missing pieces that we've been withholding from you. Uh, you do the work, you put it together, uh, but we're also going to keep the movie going. So your brain's doing too many things at once. Uh, second rewatch, I feel like it went a lot smoother, but it is sort of like, I don't know, like when they get to like California, like the tone kind of shifts mm -hmm. uh, and it's a little jarring. 
Yeah. Um, are either of you familiar with Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome? Have you seen that? I have not seen Beyond Thunderdome. I have seen Fury Road. Okay. Awesome. I've only seen Fury Road. Okay. Cur- courtesy of my dad. <laughs> so Fury Road, that, that's a great movie. Beyond Thunderdome was the third in the original kind of Mad Max trilogy. Um, so yeah. it's the third with Mel Gibson. That movie had, it's not exactly the same, but that movie was basically kind of two different movies in one. Um, all of the marketing, most of what anybody remembers of that movie all has to do with Bartertown and Thunderdome and all of that. And then the movie takes this weird twist and goes in a totally different direction. That sort of happens with Book of Eli in a way. Um, because again, once the, you get done with that shootout at the, the house of the cannibal people, for me, it's like, okay, now we're, we're going to start revealing all this stuff. And it's a cool idea, but the execution of it isn't that great. Like you said, the tonal shift of when they get to California, everything gets green again. There's all these people and everything's happy and, and, and wonderful there. And there's color, but it feels so weirdly tacked on. And like, I almost wanted them to get that earlier in the movie so you could sort of flesh that out a little bit more. Um, but so much of it was centered around this idea of the book as a weapon and that part of it and the 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 post-apocalyptic part obviously that's the drawing or that's the driving force behind the movie and that's sort of the aesthetic that they're going for but it just felt like i don't know either don't have them reach california or have it be not as drastically different i don't i don't know i don't know what i would do to to make this to to elevate this a little bit more for me when they hit california proper was that what because it felt like that they were cresting the Sierra Nevada and you went from the what looked like desert to the lush green coast. Yeah, I mean, the idea is that everything is desert at this point in the U.S. Um, if you're going to go from, if everything's going to be desert, then I mean, everything's going to be desert. And yeah. even all the way out through to San Francisco would have been desert. And yet, when they hit the was it the hills or whatever, it looked like they had hit like green lush, yeah, prairie. Yeah, it's like this. Hold on a second. Yeah, there's a, like I say, there's a little hand wavy, hand wavy. Don't worry about it. It's just what it is, type of thing. Um, but well, I I almost took that as like life is starting to come back or like return to normal, and it's close to the yeah. sea, so like it kind of makes sense. Yeah. yeah. But then you you compare it to the forest at the very beginning. Right. Uh, which I think is supposed to be like Colorado kind of area uh, because he's crossing America and like it's it's just completely dead. So it's mm-hmm. it's very different. Yeah, it, it I, is. Um, Phil's probably right. It is a metaphor, a metaphor for enlightenment. Um, that's true. Yeah. And th- this movie is not uh, subtle in its um, in its metaphors at all. Uh sort of take you know the just turn them into a frying pan just keep beating you with them so, yeah pretty much um I mean, it uh has all of the subtlety of the truck barreling down on you <laughs> yeah what were you gonna say austin uh speaking of like the ending there's the scene where uh eli is transcribing the bible from memory mm-hmm. um and he's cleanly shaven they show him dressed like a monk and it's it's kind of a clever visual because it's like 
you know, you're supposed to think back to the Middle Ages where they wrote the Bible by hand and this yep. is what a monk looked like. But it doesn't fit Eli. I feel like, like, I get that his character is supposed to be a monk, but mm -hmm. he's a new age monk, not an old age monk. And it it's almost jarring to see him dressed like that. Well, yeah. And not only that, but somebody actually did the math um, and... The, the King James that. Bible is roughly 789,000 words long, rough, rough estimate. So to write it out by hand at uh, 20 to 30 words per minute, um, it would take nearly 31,000 minutes. Assuming that the writing was done for eight hours a day, which my wrist hurts thinking about that. I'm getting writer's cramp reading this. Uh, yeah. It would take 66 days to write all that out. So, yeah. And that's assuming that he could remember it word for word, which... I'll give him that. Like I'll suspend my disbelief to that point, but it felt like it went way too fast, but you're right. Like the, the image of him, I liked the, the idea of he made it to his sanctuary. He got clean. He cleaned himself up, but it looks so weird because we're, we're just so used to seeing him grimy and, and on the road and searching for boots. Uh, that was a great moment in the beginning of the movie where he finds the boots on the dead guy and takes those like boots are, are he kept looking for uh for boots on everyone that he would find i think that he skipped some books saying it from memory i think it was meant more to be a time lapse than he oh hey he from went from genesis to whatever well yeah yeah but they they don't you could clearly see the because you could clearly see the piles and reams <laughs> and boxes of paper next to the I'm just going to go and call him the curator because that's what I felt like what he was. Mm -hmm. And because you could see everything before. Oh, sure. So, I mean, I, I really do think that was meant to be a time lapse. But then even when you're without looking at the IMDb, you know, trivia, and you can could see where they put that book next to. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. They put it next to a copy of the Torah. Yeah, the Torah. <laughs> and it's like... Clearly, there was still, even in that enlightened area, it, there was still a lot of knowledge lost or just never found again. Because unless you're you were Jewish, you are not going to understand that. Right, that's the thing. Can you read uh, Old Hebrew? Because I, I can't. I don't know many people that can. I do know a couple of people that can, but you yeah, know. I mean, I do too. But this, yeah, no, it's just it's not. And yes, we, we did not mention the, the guy that did all that writing is Malcolm McDowell. Um, and Phil, you're right. I love seeing him pop up and stuff. It was a fun little cameo right at the end. Um, even with that long hair, which just looks so weird on him. I'm not used to that. Uh, but it, the ending to this movie, it does feel... It feels like they were wanting to build to it, but then they didn't know how to do it. They didn't know how to make it work. And so it sort of fell flat for me. Um, like you could do the reveal of him being blind in a different way. Or it doesn't even have to be that he's blind. He just knows how to read Braille. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Um, but I, I I did like the blind twist. Uh, like it caught me off guard, but the way they revealed it with the Braille Bible and well, then cool. uh, Gary Oldman's kind of wife character being like, I don't know how to read Braille anymore. It's been so long. Yes. Yeah. Just as like a final push over the edge for him. Yeah. 
between that and like his gunshot wound is getting infected and she can smell how it's infected and and all that that was that I think was another thing is I didn't feel like I didn't feel like it was a satisfying end for Carnegie for how bad of a person he was and how quickly he could just turn on anybody yes having the town turn on him is is terrible but like all we saw was a bunch of people raiding his bar and him sit down and that's it yeah in a movie that was this brutal and this violent to have that be the ending for your main villain kind of a bummer right like red ridge went out with a better ending and his death made no sense to me (laughs) to calmly pull the machete out from his chest which was handled deep, by the way. Yes, um, was that? <laughs> yeah, that was through his spine. Um, and but for him to pull that out of there and then get out of the vehicle and have like this strange moment of enlightenment and look at the sun and then die, uh, that was a more satisfying ending for a character that I wanted to know more about than the ending we got for Gary Oldman. Yeah. Um, so. But again, it just felt like it felt like they got an hour and forty five minutes into the movie, and then we're like, "Well, we got to wrap this thing up." All right, uh, and there were yeah. some just sort of writing shortcuts, and and the bummer of it is like the Hughes brothers are not bad directors, but their last two films they did together were this, and about nine years earlier they released From Hell with Johnny Depp about the Jack the Ripper. And that one kind of suffered from having some sort of disjointedness and like didn't quite know what it wanted to do. And I feel like there's a little bit of that in in this, like almost like the two of them, because it it's a pair of brothers, Alan and Albert Hughes. They're twins. And there have been, I've read stories about how they sometimes just don't get along on set. Um, and uh, and they have different ideas of kind of where what direction they should go in. So maybe that's some of it is like them button heads. Um, I don't know that. But man, did they uh, they started off their career with a hell of a movie. You know what their first directorial movie was with the two of them after they'd done they had done a couple of uh, music videos, but they started with Menace to Society. And if you haven't really? seen that, that's a fantastic movie. They were 20 years old when they made that. And, uh, and, and they did that. They did dead presidents. Um, they've gone on, they've split now. They're, they're mostly doing solo stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm 20 years old now. I, I can't imagine directing a movie, let alone with my brother and having it be amazing and like critically acclaimed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You better get on the, on the ball there. You got, uh, cause they had done. So here's an interesting thing. <laughs> They, they had directed a couple of videos for Tupac, and he was originally going to star in Menace to Society um, or be in the movie. And the, the story goes that he didn't like the role they were going to give him, and he assaulted them. They sued him. He actually went to jail for like 15 days or something for the assault and then ended up not being in the movie. So, And, and they go on and they make, uh, yep, Dead Presidents was them. Um, Albert... Uh, actually directed Alpha. I don't know if either of you saw that. I did not, um, but that came out a couple years ago. Uh, that's the one with the dog um, in the prehistoric past. Uh, basically, somebody, like the, the domestication of the first dog, I think is kind of what the story was, if I remember right, or a lone wolf or something like that. But that's Albert Hughes. Alan Hughes, um, 
did the Defiant Ones miniseries documentary. Um, and uh, he did uh, a segment in New York, I Love You, uh, back in 2008. But one thing that they both did that I was a big fan of was uh, an American remake of a British series called Touching Evil. Um, Alan Hughes directed several episodes, including the pilot, and his brother was an executive producer of the show, um, which I thought was really cool because uh, I, I liked that show. It just didn't last. It only lasted like 12 episodes. Um, but they, they have a very interesting visual style, and they do not hold back on the violence. And this movie definitely had that. Like, it starts off with with the, the dude bow and arrowing a cat. Yeah. You know, hairless cat at that. That, that does sort of, it, I mean, yeah, when you watch that, it really does sort of set the tone for the entire movie, exactly what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have a question of what you're going to be, what you're getting yourself into, that opening t- scene tells you a lot. It does. Um, and, it also you know, sets you up for disappointment too, but that's a different story. <laughs> you know, but you get, uh, you, you get limbs getting cut off and, uh, and all that, an arrow through the crotch, um, the classic, uh, cause th- those guys were, were going to, uh, definitely violate Mila Kunis. Um, so if that's happening in a movie, somebody's getting, uh, somebody's getting hurt in the crotch area, whether it's a uh, RoboCop when he shoots the guy, um, that's a that's a trope that it's rough to watch, but it's also kind of one of those where it's like I never want to cheer somebody getting an arrow through their junk, but I also cheer when I see that in a movie with this situation going on because the guy earned it. Yes, <laughs> that happens in a V for Vendetta too. Yes, yep, that's another one. Yeah, I it seems like it only happens when the guy has it coming to him and. So I don't really ever feel bad about cheering about it. I mean, I cross my legs, you know, while watching it still. But oh, of I mean, course, that's. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's just that's what you do. But I guess what yeah. I mean is like the concept of uh, of getting shot or stabbed or an arrow through the junk is never something I want to cheer. But then I see it in a movie like this and I cheer it because the dude earned it. So yep. it's it's like an instant, uh, simple karma. Yes. Yes. Yes absolutely is um i did love like again there's some cool world building they did in this too like denzel yeah fine or noticing the hijackers in the beginning of the movie by smell right and again that's a subtle way to give away that maybe he's blind but at the same time let's be real if there's no soap there's very little soap you're gonna smell people yeah because we we put out some odor okay we we are not clean at all and if you can't you know, if you can't rub yourself down with some soap or uh, uh, wet naps from KFC, which <laughs> apparently those have a hell of a shelf life because you got to figure that they were, they were at least 30 years old. Um, but uh, Or maybe KFC is still kicking. They're, they're <laughs> they won the franchise war. It's not Taco Bell. KFC won the franchise wars. They're selling uh, hairless cats. <laughs> Rotisserie cat. Um, I... And, and like, but like that, you know, using that to keep yourself clean or, uh, he's got an iPod, he's got an old, um, kind of first generation iPod that he's keeping charged with this lead acid battery, um, that he can put a trickle charge on apparently when he gets to a town. But like 
there's that. And then the bartering that he does with the, like the stuff that he has, you know, he's buying water with a blanket and a pair of gloves. Like it's, I love, that's one of the reasons why post-apocalyptic stuff for me is always so fun to watch to see what is the world like? What are they trading with? What are, you know, how does, how do things continue? Yeah. Um, how, how do things continue after that? Because we don't know what exactly happened. We don't need to know what exactly happened. Although part of me kind of wants to know, cause like I, I want to know the backstory, but I also, I want to know the backstory, but I don't want the backstory done in an exposition dump, which is how it would happen in a movie like this. So I'd rather it be something that I can make up on my own. Um, the, when they got to Alcatraz, the security rather well armed and rather well dressed. And it's like, somebody knew that the world might go to shit and decided to go ahead and prepare Alcatraz for just in case. Yeah. I I mean, Hey, if you're going to, if you're going to fortify a spot, Alcatraz is a pretty good one. Yeah. Yeah. No, but it's just like, it's like, it sort of gave off the air of, Oh, Hey, we know something's about to happen. Let's go and fortify this place and start collecting shit now. Right. Try and preserve the before so we can continue on during the after. And I don't know, it just felt really odd to see see how disjointed Alcatraz was was from everything else that was going on. Yeah, well again, that's part of that ending that just felt tacked on and like like it didn't match the rest of the movie. And you can get away with a tonal shift if it's done right, and I don't feel like this tonal shift was done right. So uh, one of the it's thing- almost like oh, go ahead. It it didn't match the world building of right. the story. Yes, that's that's what it is. There's such a breakdown of society in the middle of the world or in the middle of the U.S., but then they get to San Francisco and there's like civilization again, and that doesn't match with what we've been watching for the previous hour and 45 minutes so i think that's what it is it's such a stark difference and like this dude's been wandering for 30 years but he he knew he had to go west so wherever he started either had to be as far east as you can get where you can where you can work at a kmart because he worked in a kmart so that or or he went the wrong direction for quite a while because i don't care it would not take you 30 years to walk across the country. Maybe he started in California and just went east all the way around the planet. That could be. That could be. Or he started out in like Arizona and the voice told him where the book was, but the book was in New York. So he had to go all the way out there to get it and then yeah. trek his way back. Um, either one. But you're right. It's just it's such a stark contrast and such a jarring difference. He walked in circles for a decade. All right, there you go. Slept for 29 years. That works too. Um, one other thing I wanted to quickly mention about the Hughes brothers, because this to me was a very kind of cool piece of trivia. Um, it, for anyone that's not familiar, the Directors Guild of America has certain rules on who can have director's credits on movies. Um, and you see this pop up sometimes when uh, a, a classic example is the movie The 13th Warrior is directed by John McTiernan but a lot of the end of that movie was actually directed by Michael Crichton. However, he goes uncredited because the Directors Guild of America basically says, no, this was, this was McTiernan's movie. He has to get it. So they're also, it's very rare that you get to have multiple directors on a film. Um, 
with some exceptions, the Cohen brothers are an exception to that. Well, the Hughes brothers were also an exception to that. And it was actually partly because they had done some music videos prior to joining their, the Directors Guild that they got a waiver. Um, and apparently were the first sibling duo since, well, this says since Jerry and David Zucker to be waived, to get the waiver, but the Coen brothers had put out movies prior to 1993. So I don't think that's entirely accurate, but it's cool to see them get the, the waiver to be the Hughes brothers or the Wachowski siblings, um, which is what it would be now. Um, that kind of thing. I, I like seeing stuff like that because, there's so much collaboration and, and so much work that goes into making a film like this. And when it's two brothers uh, or two siblings or two people that co-direct something, um, I, I do think that it's fair that they both get credit. So I, I just wanted to bring that up. I thought that was kind of cool. It's, it's weird that it seems, I'm sure that's not the case, but it seems like it's only like siblings. It's like, no, you have to be related. Typically, that's what you notice. It's like Jerry and David Zucker. It's Alan and Albert Hughes, Joel and Ethan Cohen. Um, and and that, I think, was... Unless it's an anthology, in which case you can have a bunch of shorts. Um, four Rooms was one that has, you know, four directors. Um, yeah. uh, I Love You, New York, which is one that uh, one of the Hughes brothers worked on, was a, a series of vignettes. So it has a multiple director thing, but like a feature film, the the director's guild is just like, no, there's gotta be one. Uh, but you're right. Um, although, who is it? Uh, uh, the guys that did the second Ghost Rider movie, Spirit of Vengeance, um, Neville Dean and Taylor, they have gotten a waiver at some point. They had to have because they're directed or they're credited as Neville Dean and Taylor. I think the director's guild is la- is loosening up the restrictions a lot more in the last 10 or 15 years. So... But these guys have been the these guys were the Hughes brothers as far back as 1993 with Menace to Society. So yeah. slow changes. Hollywood doesn't change quickly. Um, no, it's it's very much like dried cement. <laughs> yeah, um, very bureaucratic for such a yeah. Just an art form in general to be bureaucratic is very weird. Well, it's because film is an art form, but Hollywood is a business. So Hollywood in the film industry is going to be very bureaucratic. That's for sure. Uh, I'm glad to see the changes that are happening. Um, I'd like to see them happen faster, and I'd like to see uh, more um, diversity in the voices. And we're finally starting to get some more diversity in voices, both in front of and behind the camera. Um, which is I good. I do wonder if some of the changes and loosening were uh, sort of a re- direct result of Netflix putting out like their own original content and basically having already thumbed their nose at uh, the the Screenwriters Guild and the Actor Screen Actors Guild. I'm sure there's. Man. I'm sure that Public the player for their nose at- Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, we should probably start changing. Sure. And, sure, and Phil brings up a good point. Guilds are basically unions. Uh, rules are yeah. uh, make it bureaucratic, but they also look out for artists' rights. There's definitely a lot of that because what you don't want and why the Directors Guild has what they have is a situation like a 13th Warrior where John McTiernan is hired, he's contracted to be the director of the film. He does nine-tenths of the film and then somebody doesn't like it, so they fire him and bring in someone else to finish the movie, but they still use a bunch of McTiernan's footage he should still get the credit for directing that. 
um, even if he didn't finish the film. So it's it's a balance. There's a there's a delicate balance there, and that's why they had the yeah. rule. But the wavering, I think, is where you're seeing more restrictions get loosened where it's not, you know, well, there's only one director on a film. No, we can now have co-directors. We're seeing a little bit more of that. Um, but it's it's just like having, you know, the Actors Guild and the, the Writers Guild and all of that. They're, they're there to help as much as they are to create bureaucracy. So, um, but look, Book of Eli, this was a good movie. Uh, I can't remember, I think Nisbet, you were... You mentioned this one, but you wanted to do this and you wanted to have Austin on to talk about it. So um, thank you for that. Because this I wanted, was. I, wanted, I, you know, wanted him to probably get, you know, put in front of the microphone. <laughs> well, he gets to talk with his dad all the time on the picture show. Been, but... Yeah. I, I mean, you know, but for with you, because, I mean, why not? Sure. Get, no. get outside my circle, uh, which is really just my family, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Stretch Come your on. legs a little bit. Um, now would you say Austin that, um, you've, where would you stand on this movie as far as like, do you like it? Do you not like it after now watching it again? Um, kind of where would you fall on that? I, I really like it. I'm actually glad that I got the opportunity to come on here because, uh, it's interesting. I've already recorded my thoughts on like my first viewing of this movie mm -hmm. and it's radically different and I'm almost embarrassed of it at this point <laughs> uh, because of how different I feel now. But it is interesting to kind of compare. So yeah, I would almost say I love this movie, but I think that's a little overkill. I just, the ideas and the concepts in it, um, and you mentioned earlier, like uh, Gary Oldman, he says something about the Bible being uh, a weapon, not a mm -hmm. book. And like the whole idea there, uh, kind yeah. of like this message against uh, dangerous preachers uh, is really fascinating to me. And I've I've connected with it a lot more on a second run. That's cool. And that's one of the cool things about movies, right? Is you can watch something and I almost universally will try to give a movie a second chance unless I just absolutely hated it the first time. Um, now, there are some movies that I genuinely thought were good films that I don't ever want to watch again. Um, Monster was one of those. That movie was rough and I've seen it and I can say I saw it and that's it. Uh, there's a, a Belgian film called Man Bites Dog that's a fantastic kind of mockumentary, but I don't ever want to see it again because it's just icky and made me feel made me feel gross watching it. Um, but I, I do like that idea of you watched a movie and you were like, eh, it's not that great. And you did a podcast about it. You talked about what you didn't like. And then we strong armed you into watching it again and, uh, you know, really had to twist your arm for it. But um, you watched it again and you liked it. So that's cool because you're seeing it from a different perspective uh, the second time you watch a movie, right? Because now it's no longer fresh and new. Now you get to see it through different eyes. And on that second viewing or that third viewing, you now notice things you didn't notice before and it makes you think about things in a different way. So that's really cool. I'm, I'm, glad, that you, I'm glad that you enjoyed the movie. And I, I like seeing, I like hearing that journey. I like hearing that change um, 
and that sort of evolution in, in the way that you think about it. Because you're right, there is some really, really cool concepts in this movie. There's some really... I, I have beaten this horse to death talking about it on this show, but this would make a great series. The ideas in this would make a great kind of limited run Netflix series like, or, or Hulu or pick your streaming service. Do So they can expand between those disjointed scenes. Exactly. Give it even like six to 10 episodes is all you need. You don't need anything longer than that, but it's enough to, so to stretch out. Yeah. Stretch out sort and flesh like out some of that. Sort of like what they did with Dune because the mm-hmm. yep. movie there and, the, and while is very good, especially for 1984, is the 2000 miniseries expanded on that better and made it a better story. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I definitely think that the Book of Eli could stand to have the same treatment and it would be better for it. I think so, because I think it would give you time to let some of these concepts and some of these ideas sort of build and and flesh out and give us more. And then you don't have the jar the jarring feeling of this tonal shift because you can slip that in somewhere in an earlier episode and then explore it further as you go along. The whole idea that like there's parts of the country that might be actually coming back and and all that. Like I think that would be kind of cool. So well Austin I'm I'm because I mean I know this isn't like the same vein because of of it's an original property. It's not an adaption like Dune was. But like with something like Dune and even this, I mean if this were to have been a book first the movie you can fit a hundred and twenty minutes, you know, worth of of the book, and whereas the miniseries, you could fit six, eight, ten, twelve hours worth of the material in and yep. cover more better. So, well, I think uh, the thing is, like, when you're adapting a book uh, to a movie, you have to condense it so much, and I feel like they had a book's worth of ideas here yep. that they had to really just put some like quick note versions in there and yeah. some of it really worked and some of it kind of fell flat or like agree was was just kind of like hey eh, you figure it out yourself and <laughs> it will we'll keep the pacing of the story here and ignore how he got out of this room right and i think i don't want every movie to spoon feed me all the information but what I want is I want the spaces where I'm going to fill in the blanks to make sense. I have to fill in the blank of how he got out of that room without the guard seeing him when the guard was standing there the whole time. Now, it makes for a, it makes for a badass scene when they're walking away and Redbridge just turns around and shoots the guy because he failed. Like, that's a scene that is, uh, can tell you a lot about a character but because the first part, I'm still confused as to how he got out of the room, so it doesn't hit me with that same impact. This is almost like a first or second draft of of the story, and they were just like, "Cool, run with it. Let's do that, and we'll make that movie." Instead of taking the time to really, you know, build it out and maybe cut the trim the fat a little bit and and massage out the the other parts of it. So it's. It's worth watching. If you haven't seen it before, it's worth watching. If you have seen it, it's worth watching again. Um, because the... I enjoyed it again more. Like Austin, I was okay with it the first time through. Mm-hmm. This time, I enjoyed it. And to the point of, I have this habit of 
skipping through, especially with modern day technology. <laughs> I tend to skip through the bits and pieces where it's like, okay, this is making me too uncomfortable. This movie, I didn't really feel the need to this time. Right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, because I, I do remember the first time I saw it, I, I left the room for a little bit <laughs> and the same parts where it had made me uncomfortable in the same places. And this time I didn't feel the need to. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, I, look, I think this is a, a really good movie, and I think it's worth seeing. So thank you for bringing it uh, to me, and I got to see something new, which is always fun. Um, and thank both of you for being on here. Now, Austin, you do a show with your dad, um, who has been a guest on this show before. Phil, uh, tell us about that show and where you can find it. I do. Uh, our show is called The Picture Show with Austin and Phil Rude, and we're on pretty much any uh, podcatcher so uh, iTunes or Spotify you can also find us on my dad's YouTube channel Phil Rude um, and you can find me on Twitter um, I'm Austin and Rude uh, and you can find links to all of our stuff there excellent excellent it's a good show people should check it out um, you guys are great so uh, thank you again thank Austin you. for being on uh, you're welcome back anytime. We'll have to have you back. I'll find something you haven't seen. Um, and, uh, and we'll have you on and we'll talk about that sometime. That'll be fun. Awesome. And Nisbet, where can people find you? You Well, I <laughs> have a Twitter, but it's mostly to say I have a Twitter, um, but it is just at Nisbet. Um, I'm on Discord, you know, um, through, you know, people can find me through your uh, Discord server um, mm-hmm. again. But most places that I'm on, I'm that's my handle. So I mean, um, there are most of the places I'm on though. It's just to say I have one. So <laughs> fair enough. I mean, Discord is is honestly going to be if anybody wants to get a hold of me is honestly going to be the quickest way of doing that. Just because it's that's pretty much the only thing I have open both. Constantly on my phone and on my computer. Yeah, yeah. So, if I want to tell you you're horribly wrong about your opinions on uh, Book of Eli, I'm gonna to have to use Discord. Pretty or much. Yeah. Okay, fair. Yeah. You can use Twitter, but you might not. He might not answer that one. Yeah. <laughs> but you had to get on the social or, platforms or and get the answer. name. That's the important. Or if I do answer, it'll be like a year later. <laughs> that that too. Um, now if you want to be like uh, gray lioness or, or uh, Austin's dad, Phil or Danny Ora, um, and hang out while we record this live, uh, you can do that. Um, I record this show live on Sunday nights, 8 PM Eastern time at twitch.tv slash TV's Travis. Um, I also do, uh, game streams and other shows and, and podcasts, uh, on my Twitch channel as well. So if you ever, kind of want to hang out um and see what i'm up to that's a good spot to find me uh twitter is at tv's travis i'm pretty active there um pretty much if it's if it's a social platform and i'm part of it uh it's tv's travis tvs travis anywhere um now next week i am talking about oh i don't know what movie i'm talking about next week i know it's going to be a good one i just couldn't tell you what it is i'll have to look that up and while i'm doing that i also want to mention that the show is available um, pretty much anywhere you can get podcasts. Uh, if you do watch the show um, and or listen to the show, 
if you can leave a rating and a review on on like uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, it does help the show become more discoverable to other people. Uh, so that will be fun. Um, and uh, next week I have uh, Vincent Minucci, who was on um, uh, America's Next Top Podcaster Season 3. We're going to talk about uh, my first time ever seeing Chef. And I, I can't believe I haven't seen Chef because I also am a big John Favreau fan. And uh, I, I know of the movie, but I never watched it. So we're going to watch that one. And we're going to talk about that next week. And the week after that is Brazil from Terry Gilliam. Uh, Jay Ledbetter is coming on to talk with me about that film. I love Brazil. I've seen it many, many times. And that's before we get to Cage of Palooza 2021 in the month of August. And watch out for that because it's all Nicolas Cage all month. And it's going to be a blast. Uh, it has been so much fun the last couple of years doing that. I can't wait to do it again. So that's kind of what's coming up over the next couple of weeks uh, for this show. Um, so once again, Nisbet, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, always a pleasure. Austin, it was wonderful to have you on. We'll do it again. And uh, Thank you. I look forward to it. Excellent. And for all of you out there that are listening, uh, just you know, enjoy your movies. Um, and we're getting outside, we're getting back to semi-normal, so be excellent to each other. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>